and taken away your name. Dr. Steve Pachanik with Adam Curry for December 11th, 2019. This is episode number five. The one and only American warrior in crises, Dr. Steve Pachanik. Steve, how you doing? Fine, and thank you for inviting me on your show. It's really a pleasure to be with you and to have a little bit of rock and roll and some serious <laughs> discussions about the secret agent man world. Yeah, I thought you wouldn't mind if I took this one from, uh, I think that was mid-60s, uh, uh, Johnny Rivers, the original, of course. Correct. Johnny Late- Rivers. Later yeah. uh, ruined by uh, Bruce Willis, but uh, this is still the original. <laughs> yeah, it's Johnny Rivers. And, uh, and in a way, it fits, it's, it's befitting, and in a way, it's not, and we'll get into that. Because right. I, yesterday, I read your book, uh, your new book, because, my goodness, you've written about 50. Um, and it is titled American Warrior in Crises, that's C-R-I-S-E-S, which is important. Because uh, you're not in crisis, you're in crises. Right. <laughs> and... If I and I read it in one sitting, it was fantastic. It's it's really it's not even that long. It's you know 184 pages, which right. is is a very uh, a very nice read, and it's it's really put into re- very uh, consumable chunks. And really for me, it was kind of like Doctor Steve's greatest hits, weaving a tapestry of understanding of the actual inner workings of. You can call it deep state, but that's not really it. It's the workings of the of the United States government, but also. It's a great American success story of a Jewish kid from Cuba making his mark in his um, adopted country and and taking that as far as one can uh, with love of the republic and love of the country. Um, I think that's fair to say, Adam. I think I am. That's why I wrote the book, because at a time when we had all these problems with refugees and we claim that they have an opportunity to come in. I, I, clearly, I'm a refugee. My father was a refugee, served in World War II. My mother came from Russia. These were highly intellectual people. But despite all of that, having been born in Cuba by chance because FDR would not bring in a lot of the Jews from the Holocaust, contrary to the, the myth of the liberal, the fact was we were vetted out for six years. And in those six years, we had an opportunity to come to the United States. My father had exactly one year to learn all of the English and pass an exam that only one person passed uh, amidst 485 other doctors. And had he not passed it, I would not have been here. But the point of fact that I made in the book and why I'm so proud to be an American is that you you earn the right. It isn't something that automatically befits you. Just because you came across the border means absolutely nothing. Right. In my perception, the idea of an American citizen, and it should remain, is what do you give to the country? Not what does the country give to you, but what is it that you can give to the country and what are you able to garner from the values that the country has? And for a kid like me who didn't speak English to end up a best-selling novelist in English was absolutely amazing. Even to this day, I'm saying this this is – you know, incredible. I could only have done it in America because I saw what happened in France. I saw what happened in Cuba. I saw what happened in the Soviet Union. I saw what happened in the Middle East. Only America afforded me that kind of opportunity. If you take risks, you will discipline, and you understand that America is about your ability to contribute and to be 
what you want to be, but it has to be productive. It can't just be self-consuming. It's not about narcissism. It's the contrast to what we see today, and I'll bring it up today. For example, the politicians. I don't demean them, but at the same time, as a psychiatrist, I had the opportunity to treat them. What does the impeachment really mean? What it demonstrated to me in contrast to those things as entrepreneurs, where you and I create companies, where we create assets, what you saw there is the immense amount of imbroglio of process, meaning this process on top of process on top of process, which signifies very little, or as Shakespeare's sound and fury signifying nothing. And the impeachment came out to really be nothing. In contrast, you have a man who seems boisterous, like me, ironically, his grandfather and his father were refugees from Germany. Mm -hmm. And ironically, nobody speaks about the fact that his uncle, John Trump, was one of the professors where I went to at MIT. So instead, we debase the president, we debase everything around him. And what we have is the concept of achievement versus process. And that's what I think in America, I'm beginning to see. I'm the product of self-achievement, self-determination, of discipline. At the same time, I'm the product of saying, well, thank you, military, for having drafted me and also allowing me to be what I could be while serving you for free. And and when I, you know, since you brought up the impeachment, what a couple of things that, uh, of note. Uh, first of all, these are pretty much all career uh Right. Bureaucrats. So let's put it that way. That right. you're a, a, a diplomat or not, you're a bureaucrat. And something that is continuously brought up is the oath, the oath that we took. And I think to myself, it may not happen anymore. But for many years, when I was a kid, I took an oath. And every single morning in school, we'd stand up and we'd say, uh, and we'd address the flag, and we would literally take an oath. That is an oath just as solemn as the oath the president takes or any politician takes. But what's different about, well, you and I, but you specifically, and I think the reason why you can even publish this book, which you've done, you've self-published, and we can get into the reasons for that, but this is not something that was vetted. There's no, there's no requirement for you to, be, to, to vet the publication because you never actually were employed directly by any intelligence agency. You stood on the outside. Correct. That's an excellent analysis. The truth of the matter is I came in and I was drafted immediately out of the 88 medical students at Cornell University Medical College. I was probably the only one drafted. I did not receive what they call a berry deferment. I did not get three years of delay. What happened very quickly is when I was drafted, uh, I went to see, let's say, a military officer, and we were able to negotiate out a deal where in turn I would go to various schools, Cornell, Harvard, Mass Mental, and MIT, and in return for which I would give them free uh, uh, access to my talents, whatever they might be. So I became a hostage negotiator. I became an international crisis manager. I went to the Soviet Union. I went to Italy to do the Aldemaro kidnapping. I went to Panama to do Noriega. But never, never, and as much as I would love to say, the CIA constantly wanted to recruit me. Yeah. And 
I, I remember, you know, Bill Casey, one of the loveliest gentlemen, saying to me, why am I working for that blah, blah, candy ass State Department when he <laughs> wanted me to work for the agency, knowing right. fully well that I worked with his operatives and other operatives overseas. And I said, Mr. Casey, I work for the Republic. It doesn't really matter what I am. And and then I first had a public health uh, facade. Then I had a deputy assistant secretary of management facade. But never did I formally belong to the agency, although ironically, I was trained at MIT by the CIA and, and by well, operatives. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, you actually, you detail, and I think that's probably one of your first psychological operations is where you go in uh, uh to see the um i don't know if he was a lieutenant commander or colonel whatever he was and you say here's the here's the deal i'm going to make with you i want you to educate me at mit i want this education this education and in turn i'll give you 10 years of my life and you actually psyop the guy right there i don't know how old you were you must have been 19 or something 18 maybe but you totally psyop the guy and he knew it and he liked it i think that's really that set the stage for you well, I think what you hit is, on Adam, it's been the story of my life in terms of the military, the CIA, the State Department. We have always been able to make a deal where both of us benefited from the deal. And the truth of the matter was they appreciated my capability to psyops, to, to be intuitive and to be risk prone. Risk prone to the sense of I'm going to do whatever I need to do for the country. If there's a hostage negotiation occurring in the Carter administration, he's got a problem with it. I had a call from Earl Silbert, the prosecutor, the U.S. attorney, said, can you help us out? The FBI is not doing well. It wasn't to deprecate the FBI. I had no jurisdiction over the domestic part. Nevertheless, I came in. I was a military officer at that time. I had done hostage negotiation with Eagleburg of the State Department. I literally took it over with uh, Police Chief Cullinane, who was excellent, Earl Silbert, who was the prosecutor, and uh, the White House constantly pushing on me to get out. And as a military officer, I was actually threatened with insubordination. And I explained to the White House, look, I'm here to help them out with a hostage negotiation that's been going on for some hours, 11 hours. It eventually went out for 26 hours. It was called the Hanafi Muslim, and it became famous. And when I dealt with the FBI leader and the leadership there, you know, I was pretty frank with them. I say, look, I need some military capacity. I need some ability for you guys to be on the rooftops. And I need you to repel from a helicopter. Well, I didn't want to embarrass the FBI. And the head of the FBI at that time came over to me and explained that they couldn't repel because they got dizzy. I said, okay, <laughs> I can, well, well that, that's I fair. That's fair. That's fair. And I said, that's fine. Then just do me a favor. Get your scopes out of the way because I've got a guy who's very tense, Pelleys. He, he had correctly taken over a hostage, but because in three different buildings, 500, but basically because uh, Elijah Muhammad and the Farrakhan, this was a war between the different black Islamic groups. And in turn, he took it out on three different buildings. Steve, why, why, is, why is this particular, uh, this thing that happened, the Hanafi Muslim siege in D.C., that is, you know, the first time I ever heard of it, I think, was in one of our previous conversations. Um, and, of course, it's, it's detailed in the book. But that's not something anyone ever talks about. I mean, and it's so, um, it would be appropriate with with terrorism, with uh, Muslim religious you know, uh, differences. It's never brought up anywhere. 
Well, because it was one and a point of embarrassment for the Carter administration. Number two, it was a point of embarrassment for the FBI. Number three, it was one of the first, if not the first, uh, Islamic fundamentalist hostage siege that we were involved in. I certainly had to do other ones with Habash, Hawatme, all over the Middle East. But this was the first one and major one that we had on the on our soil. It was also the first one where I had to violate what the TV and the radio and the newspapers thought was their amendment, the right for them to monitor the hostage. Right. You, you had their feeds cut, basically. I had to have the feeds cut because while I, what I was watching was the entire hostage negotiation being fed back to Khalees through the TV and the radio. And I said, I'm cutting the feeds. And of course, the newspapers rightfully got upset and they said, look, we have the right to report. I said, not really. You have the right to report whatever it is. I determined because this is a crisis. This is an emergency room. So I, I approached uh, the hostage situation as I would be as a physician in an emergency room. Subsequently, I sat down with ABC and NBC and the correspondents and explained to them, if you cannot improve the situation, you're really part of the problem because terrorism is the act of terror amplified by coverage, either yes, in newspapers, yes. TV. And that was the beginning of the notion of how we amplified terrorism. I think they began to understand it, but it was never fully implemented. But well, it's part of that is it's also the fallacy of the, the media's interpretation of the First Amendment uh, by thinking that the freedom of press equals the freedom to go anywhere they want, standing anywhere they want, be in the room at all times, which is just, in fact, it's just not true. I mean, it, the, it just, it, but that, that is something that is just thrown in our face continuously by the media. Well, because that there is a sense and entitlement of the media where they say, look, we are journalists. Well, that, that doesn't mean anything to me. Basically, at that time, when a journalist wanted information, the truth of the matter is they were very uh, what I would call hypertrophied sycophants. In other words, they were the ones who would come to me and say, geez, you know, I want to develop you as a source and I want you to tell me what you need to. So, in fact, journalism was based on the kindness of others, as Tennessee Williams would say. <laughs> My point of view, it wasn't relevant because I could use them both to advantage of the government and to right. the disadvantage. And when I was in the Aldemaro kidnapping, I remember some, you know, self-important individual in the New York Times article came and interviewed me. And I really didn't want the interview. And he interviewed me and really said, I really didn't know what I was doing in Aldemaro kidnapping when he eventually died. And uh, 20 years later, I refuted the entire argument of this article and that particular writer went bananas he said well you lied to me i said of well and, and 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 that's what's so funny about it or yeah or ironic is that the incessant need for the media to always be in the room completely opens them up to become an amplification of propaganda or whatever message is to be sent out they're so stupid they don't see this well, Adam, they don't exactly. I mean, they're not trained as you and I were trained, but certainly in the intelligence world, we we are trained or we understand that the media is nothing more than a dialectic, which I can move one way or the other or two different 
directions. In other words, a positive and negative at the same time and still be correct. Right. And they would say, well, why'd you do that? And I said, why not? <laughs> Your job is to make sure that you maintain certain sense of credibility and to assess my reality testing. But it's not my job to give you information. Right. Happen to know. I will manipulate you constantly. Yes. So that notion of manipulation is alien to the American character. Ah, now this is a key point. It, key point. Key point. It, it is a key point because there's a notion of entitlement that says, oh, well, I deserve to be told uh, the truth. I deserve to be this type of uh, narrative. I deserve to be appreciated. Well, you're seeing it now with the impeachment. No, you don't deserve anything. I treated congressmen, congresswomen, and senators, politicians. What you're dealing with are people who deal in process. What people like you and I deal with or others, we deal with product. Process <laughs> is only the intermediate step to the final product. Either right. I have a book, I have a company, I treated a patient, I did a hostage negotiation, I freed them, or I didn't succeed. There is no other way. And and in turn, what you're listening to is, well, I want to go to this meeting. I want to go to this and I want to go. When you look at the life of a politician, it's nothing but lunches, dinners and talks of no value. And if you were to say to them, well, what have you accomplished in six years as a senator? They'll say, well, I've been at a lot of meetings. <laughs> I, I, I gave the boxes some air. <laughs> That's exactly it. So here you are, you and I are very similar in the fact that we're using an outlet, a narrative. For you, it's the microphone or MTV. For me, it was the book. And at the same time, when I tried to do TV shows in California, I tried that as a narrative. I wasn't that good. Quite frankly, I was uh, reprimanded by a friend of mine who who I had put in at ABC, Mark Petowitz, who's now head of uh, CW. He's an excellent, excellent uh, CEO and an excellent producer. But after two years of working on NetForce and putting together the whole team, which is not easy, mm -hmm. he said to me, quite frankly, you're middling producer. And I said, you know what? You're right. You're right. <laughs> now, something that you you build up in the beginning with your uh, with your medical background, and uh, you already mentioned the emergency room, how key that was to understand, you know, how to how right. to you know basically think on your feet because if not, people die. Um, but you continuously show the reader that what you do is inherently really simple because you understand how the mind works. And and you can even do this at a, just by observing someone from a distance, and and you've been you've made incredible predictions. You've um, uh, not just like oh I made a prediction, but actually things that save people's lives. Um, and right down to something you coined political psychology. And what is that really fascinates me because you don't really explain because of course you know I, I presume you have to study and understand, but maybe there is an inherent. Um, something inside of you that already had figured out what makes people tick and how you can use that to your benefit for whatever your mission is. That's an excellent analysis. What I explained was when I went to Harvard for psychiatry, they had some good teachers there. There was Dutch Ludwig, who had been at the Battle of the Bulge. He taught me about PTSD, Joe Sabbath. Most of them were psychoanalysts or psychoanalytically oriented. 
at the same time, because of the deal that I made uh, with the military, I was able to go to Lucian Pai and MIT, the political science department. There is where I found the beginnings of what I could imagine in my mind was called political psychology. Ironically, there was a gentleman by the name of Harold Laswell who came and in 1926 wrote a book called Personality and Politics or Psychopathology and Politics and actually had worked at the very institution I was first sent in as a public health service office, St. Elizabeth's, had observed the dynamics of politicians and how it was implemented in the political field. So in effect, what happened is the, the dream that I had in my mind was reified by my having walked across the street from Harvard and gone to MIT, the political science department, which people don't associate with MIT because it's an engineering school. Right. And there I found two geniuses, Harold Laswell, Lucian my uh, Kaufman, who taught me strategic war and strategic. And these were people who were under the auspices of the McCone Center or the CIA. And so in, in, in reality, I was trained by Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, which already saw the future of a little thing called the Internet. Yeah. So by 1972, not only was I trained in political psychology by Lucian Pye, but I had Kaufman and I had others who were trained in Ithiel de Solopool on the Internet and social media. And I'm saying, wow, what is that? I'd never seen the Internet, but we had already developed a concept in the military and in the intelligence world 30 years ahead of what we had seen. As a result of that introduction, when I became the writer, doctor, novelist, which I kind of based also on Somerset Maugham and A.J. Cron and the British physicians were always a model to me as being a doctor and a, and a novelist, and mm. also being in intelligence. Somerset Moen was a novelist, a, a, a playwright, A.J. Cronin, and they were an MI6, and at the same time wrote fiction. So when I had that model, it reaffirmed for me, wow, I could do this, and let me apply it. And then Lucian Pye would ask me, <clears throat> excuse me, after three years where I intensively studied the socialization of children, the socialization of countries, the national character of countries. We never talked about that. How the Soviets had uh, meaning who's on top of whom. I'd studied Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai, the Cultural Revolution all under the auspices of the MIT faculty, which doesn't exist anymore, and which is now politically correct, mm. whereas then it was involved in the Vietnam War. We knew we had made mistakes. They had developed the body count. But at the same time, they were very hard-nosed uh, theoreticians and, and practitioners who had been in the OSS, who had been in the Marine Corps. And so it wasn't some, you know, airy-fairy type of theory like I was getting at Mass Mental Health, which was psycho analytically oriented. I knew all about it, but I really, really understood one thing. You're born to be intuitive as you are, or many operatives who are in the agency or elsewhere. You don't become intuitive. What happens is you get refined into a mindset where you become self-disciplined. And the years where I had practiced classical music allowed me to be self-disciplined and allowed me to be a doctor irrespective of what the dynamics were of the institution. So at MIT, 
I really fit in very perfectly at that particular point in time, not necessarily now. And then from there, I ended up to be a deputy assistant secretary for Kissinger, Larry Eagleburger, really, and then went on to work with Brent Scowcroft, Reagan, uh, a whole bunch of presidents. Because music is an important part of, uh, of your story, although rock and roll is much more where it's at, and we have discussed this on a previous episode, um, you uh, you did study very hard to be a, uh, a classical pianist, and uh, you mentioned one piece specifically in your book, and I figured I might as well listen to it, and I'm like, holy crap, no wonder you didn't want to, this is hard, man. This is, uh, what is, it? you know what this is, this piece? <laughs> You're laughing. Impromptu, a flat nature. Where did you get that? Well, I... I just remembered uh, from the book what it was, and I found a recording of Schubert, Impromptu Number no. 4, A-flat major, D-899. And right. that's, what a piece, man. It's like nine minutes. <laughs> well, you hit it on the head, Adam. As you know from being in rock and roll or any music, it doesn't come easily. It, it looks easy. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the audience wants to make believe that, boy, this is facile and it's fascinating. But in truth, and my parents did not encourage this, I had a wonderful teacher named Hanya Polyakov from Poland and Belgium who came once a week and she would give me very complicated pieces. But you had to practice three to four hours a day to achieve a technical mastery that only I could determine. And I wasn't necessarily a perfectionist, but I certainly spent four hours a day to practice until I could have a concert at the end of the year and then eventually go on the radio, the Young American Artist Series, and play that. So as Vladimir Horowitz once said, he dissociated. And what happens when you're under stress is you watch your fingers go up and down. <laughs> But your mind isn't necessarily there. So it's the gymnastics of having your fingers go up and down and shoot but impromptu. Right. The other one, of course, was Chopin's revolutionary attitude. Not easy as well. But it afforded me the chance to allow me to be self-disciplined, not to be perfect. And then finally, when it came out, I realized, you know what? I can be a good musician or I could be a piano teacher, but I could never really be a, uh, a composer. I didn't have that talent and I wasn't disturbed by it. But what I garnered from what I did was the discipline, the desire to perfect, the desire to make mistakes and the desire to understand that. This is what I can do. You like it or you don't like it. It's too bad. I'm not playing for the audience. I'm playing for myself. So it really is amazing. You got a recording of it. <laughs> and I'm very impressed. So uh, I'd, I'd like to run through a couple of your what I call your greatest hits. And the thing that um, would be nice, which is not really you didn't you don't really go into this in the book, is how you get called into each individual situation because you find yourself i'll just start with uh i mean and and it's it's mind-blowing because of course i've read up on you and i've known you for a while we talk and you tell lots of stories and half of them you know i'm always from my uncle i learned write down notes write down notes and what the hell did i write down what the hell was he talking about there's so much going on but you were you actually provided uh, a lot of the intelligence just to start off with with the gorbachev uh, Reagan uh, situation, which eventually right. led to you know a huge shift in the world. How did you get pulled into that? And from what I understand, you actually you saw it very quickly and understood uh, immediately how the situation would have to be handled, which I think is is part of your 
absolute genius to be able to see that, say, okay, here's, well, well, please, if you would just explain that particular situation. Well, let, let, me, let me, first of all, before I was ever near the Gorbachev phenomenon, yeah, I, I write in the book that at the, as a director of international activities, National Institute of Mental Health, which really was a fancy title for myself and a secretary, it sounded more prestigious than I was, but the National Institute of Mental Health was quite effective. And I had gone to the Soviet Union a couple of times there to what we call commoditize the Christians or to get the political dissidents out. So I immediately understood what was happening to Russia and the Soviet Union in the 70s. I spoke Russian. I had met with the Russians. I had met actually with uh, Stalin's right hand man who was head of the Kachenko Psychiatric Hospital. And two things came out clear. The Russians have always been a proud people. They were formidable in World War II. My mother, who had come out of Russian Poland, had always had high respect, as I did too. And when I went to Russia, I saw how de de decapitated it really was from the top. Namely, in the morning, I saw a lot of alcoholics and, and I was taken around and I saw that the factories were producing useless machineries and basically make work for people who were getting salaries and not doing anything, and that nobody was really in control. Even Brezhnev really didn't care. And it wasn't that kind of good guy, bad guy, or the Jack Ryan type of situation, which I wrote about, as much as it was kind of a sad situation where you wanted at the same time to help Russia, but also to help it take down the Soviet element. Pre prescient in that, in that piece that you wrote about, you're talk, uh, you have a meeting with Russian agents, and uh, you basically get them to admit that people were in Russia, were going into a factory making steel widgets, which were meant for nothing, would not be sold, would go nowhere. It was all fake. The whole economy was fake. That's correct. Not, not only that, it was to the point where the KGB was just ironically, as much as some guys in the CIA want to say it was the the reverse, they were quite nice to me and they were respectful because I spoke Russian. But also at the same time, some of them have come up to me and say, look, I want to follow you, but I have a problem, personal problem. I said, what's the problem, Leon? He said, well, my son is sick. I need money for the antibiotics. So I gave him money for antibiotics. So he said, listen, you're going to Leningrad tonight. You're going on the red train. Don't forget when you go on there by yourself you get to leningrad don't forget to check in with the kgb there i mean <laughs> yeah. it, right. can't so, get any funnier than that can't get any funnier but at the same time i had a lot of respect for them i understood what he was saying he said things aren't working out so when i showed up in leningrad i took my nice time uh they tried to honey trap me and it didn't work uh there was a beautiful woman and then the next day they gave me a very nice homosexual but it didn't work <laughs> they, wait wait a minute the guy does not respond and give him a gay guy quick <laughs> right exactly uh, was how obvious it was not an epstein phenomenon yeah <laughs> And so instead, what I had learned, though, when I went to Leningrad, I had learned something interesting. And you never know what occurs like you do, Adam. And ironically, it centers around music. And ironically, this is where you and I particularly like rock and roll. I'm sitting alone in a Leningrad restaurant. There's a young man next to me, and he keeps saying, Chicago. And I keep saying, <laughs> Chicago. No, no, he says, Chicago. And he was talking about the, the band. band. Yeah. So, and immediately I said, oh, my God, it was an, oh, uh, you know, a, 
a godsend moment. And then before I knew it, I went with that young man. And I started going down to the cellars and all. I'm seeing rock and roll. Here in the 70s, I'm seeing, you know, Little Richard is played by Ivan the Terrible. And I mean, it was wonderful and hilarious at the same time. So when I came back, I was eventually asked to go to the Rand Corporation by my friend Dick Solomon. He said to me, OK, write out your dynamics and strategy for the takedown of the Soviet Union. That wasn't difficult. Rand was a brilliant place to go to. There were a lot of very intelligent guys. And Dick and I trained both at MIT. And then eventually Schultz, with whom I worked with, trained at MIT. So you had the MIT mafia there. And what I did was to take cultural values, take music, a rock and roll band. And more importantly, I said, you know, I've got to be able to counter the communist ideology. And what I had noticed in the Soviet Union was I happen to like Greek Orthodox Church and Roman and Russian Orthodox because I collect icons. Well, lo and behold, the 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 priests were coming up to me and telling me, well, we have a secret meeting there and a secret. So I began to collate the notion. Wow. Russian Orthodoxy is not gone. It just went underground. underground yeah. And so to bring it out, uh, we uh, connected to John Paul II, who was Polish. I'd known him from Poland and Krakow, not personally. And we had asked him to give a sermon at the border of Russia and Poland, which was very deadly. And he did. There was over a million people. And we had that broadcasted into the Soviet Union. So besides the culture, besides the financial, which we were able to manipulate the ruble and take it down, besides the military, where our military was quite well, good. Well, if I could interrupt, could you explain, because you, you do detail that in the book, about taking down the ruble. And it, you, you spent maybe a couple sentences on it, but I was very interested that there was enough systemology for you to be able to say to someone all right, we need to short the ruble, and here's how it's going to go down. Can you just expand on that a bit? What happens is you have counterparts to the ruble. In other words, the ruble was the currency on which the uh, their economy depended. But behind that was really the American dollar, the Deutschmark, a whole series of other elements. And what you would do is you put it fear into the system and saying, well, the problem is Russia is getting a short of oil. They're not able to produce the oil that they want. We were lowering the price of oil when, in fact, their, their production was very low. At the same time, you had like puts and calls and we could play financially with it. And then before uh, Drexel Burnham came out, we junk bonded the uh, the ruble uh, uh, <laughs> collation of, of assets. So, how, so how, how does that work, though? It, I mean, do you call the, the then version of Jamie Dimon and say, let's do this? Or how does that message go? You go through, you go through the private industries and you, uh, private banks, and you go also through European banks where they don't trace it as well. German banks, mm-hmm. uh, other banks around. I don't want to identify them specifically, but the Treasury Department was helpful. The White House was helpful. It's it's a multilateral involvement. I don't know if you can do it now any day because it's highly restricted. But when we did, when you when they had done the sanctions on Iran, it's done the same way. And it, how come no one else had figured? I mean, so the call goes out. All right, we got to take down the Soviet Union. Um, you're brought it, in. I mean, no one had no one had thought about the financial aspect before. Well, some had. What hadn't been done is you've got to remember we're a disparate organization. The U.S. government is not a unified entity, including the intelligence service. But when you come out of the Rand Corporation and you have a strategic model, and I'm not saying I'm the only one. There were many others 
who were helping us to, to put this model into place. And that was Dick Solomon, a whole group of you know, many guys in the agency who I do or do not want to identify and others. And it was done over two administrations. First was you had the Schultz administration, you had the Reagan administration. You had a deal with a group of people, Fritz Ehrmath, who was the national security advisor, CIA uh, representative. Your dad was there, although I didn't know him. Uh, not your dad, I'm sorry. My your, uncle. Your uncle said Don Gregg. And in a way, uh, Reagan was very well protected by, and I got to give credit to James Baker. Uh, I don't know of any other national security advisor or uh, director of the White House who eventually became Secretary of State who could control an administration as tightly as James Baker did. And in turn, different operatives from the CIA, MI, the Treasury would all come in and we would share our understanding. So it wasn't something that, you know, Steve Pachena came in and wow, this was great. Got it. It was really planned out. And in the meantime, I would develop and I think your uncle took it. I developed the format where I had an opening structure for Gorbachev and Reagan because Reagan was quite articulate and Gorbachev was very talkative. The truth of the matter is I had to make Reagan Reagan inarticulate or quieter, and I had to let Gorbachev talk and talk endlessly because he was he was a pedant, but he was a nice guy. It was just he didn't belong in Russia. He belonged in the United States. <laughs> and eventually to to the end, Reagan was a brilliant negotiator in that sense because he, he knew acting and that finally at the end. He could cut off Gorbachev and come to an agreement as they went into other areas in Finland and made that agreement to say, OK, we're taking down the Soviet Union. And then he got the credit for it. I didn't want anything to do with it. I just right. had initial plan for it. And then the implementation involved the CIA, the DOD, uh, Treasury. It was oh, yeah, no, it was a lot going on. But in, in I, essence, you identified Gorbachev's weakness and you knew Reagan's strength. He had also he had done right. a lot of uh, great negotiating for the Screen Actors Guild. And yeah, he was formidable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, that was a big deal. And you you identified that and you said, OK, what I need you to do, Ronnie, is I need you to be quiet and let Gorbachev talk himself into a corner, basically. Correct. And in turn, you had Don Gregg, you had Fritz Ehrmath, you had a whole bunch of people, Nancy Reagan, who was very important, mm -hmm. who I didn't meet. And one of the things that you respect when you get involved like that is the limits of your own capacity and authority. And so it was transferred over. I remember handing, it, uh, handing a piece of paper without my name on it or anything to your, your uncle and also to Fritz Ehrmath, who sat there. And Fritz was very important because he was head of the national security and the NIO, national intelligence officer for East, for the Soviet Union. And, and there were others who were extremely important foreign service officers. And, and I give in my book a lot of credit to the foreign service. Officers. Here's a question. Um, it appears that a lot of the, the people who were holdovers from that time are have some form of trauma or PTSD about the Soviet Union. And that is part of what this Russia hysteria is based on because I see I see people and I hear people who are intelligent who actually I think believe that Vladimir Putin is trying to resurrect the Soviet Union he's evil he wants to kill us all I mean is this some form of psychosis that has been left over that is just propagated throughout time 
No, Adam, I would put it this way. Having been involved with his boss, Andropov, and understanding the dynamics of the Soviet Union, which is not the same always as Russia, there are two determinants. One was the Soviet Union, which we took down. But I was very careful to explain to all of our people who were involved, we never took down Russia. And Putin correctly reprimanded me. He didn't know who I was, but he said to the individual who had been involved, and I must admit, he was correct. He reprimanded me in particular for having allowed 23 million Russians who had been part of the Soviet Union to be without a country. Now, you got to understand the dynamics of Russia. Now, Russia is 11 time zones. The United yeah. States is four time zones. So it's three times the size. At the same time, when we got rid of the Soviet Union, we unfortunately made some mistakes. And I was part of those mistakes. One we had uh, Yeltsin come in. Well, how did we know he was that much of an alcoholic? We assume <laughs> Russians drink, but we didn't know he was that ineffective. Right. Secondly, one of the things that I did pick up, but it was a bit too late, was the fact that although Gorbachev is a lovely man and he's still alive and I appreciate what he did, he was not ruthless enough. And mm. That came out in terms of the dysphoria and dystopia that occurred in Russia. Finally, with all due respect to everybody else, Putin was not just selected out of the air. Uh, again, in fact, you, you predicted you predicted his rise. Well, we not only predicted it, we oh, you were you pushed him, you helped him, of course. Exactly. Yeah, of and course. The reason we pinpointed it is because. From our mistakes, not only my own mistakes, but from our own mistakes, we understood that we had done something incorrectly. And that was to take away the very dynamics under which Russia really could survive. It had a strong czar, a strong church, and it needed a strong leader. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to have communism. It didn't need to have. And lo and behold, here was this young man from East Germany who was very close to Merkel and others, but spoke perfect German, knew, I mean, beautiful Russian. His family had died in the war in Leningrad, so he was pure Russian. Also spoke English. We knew quite a lot about him. And ironically, when I came back to the Soviet Union with uh, uh, years later, before he came in, I went to Dzerzhinsky Square. I went to the KGB headquarters and they were showing me different things because I became friendly with the KGB. And they had warned me about Iran and all that. We'll get into that. But the KGB said to me, well, who's going to be our next boss? I said, gentlemen, it's a guy by the name of Vladimir Putin. And they looked at me and said, who? <laughs> I said, well... <laughs> KGB, like anything else, is very territorial. So you have the uh, Moscow KGB and you had Leningrad. Leningrad, in many ways, was the pure Russian version of Russia, if one could say. And so they didn't know Vladimir Putin would be it. Eventually, he became head of the KGB. Eventually, he became prime uh, prime secretary. And and that's what happened. Is Russia interested in taking over the United States? No. No. Is Russia interested in anything we do with the United States? Yes. Uh, Putin would love to have uh, Trump come in and build a lot of hotels in Leningrad, Moscow, and the Sochi, because Putin is not interested in being a world-dominant power. He understands that he's exceedingly vulnerable internally. He has one major export, which he has to diversify, and that's oil. Unfortunately for him, we're net exporters of oil now, and so we can lower the price on him. Then you ask me, well, how do we play with his 
dynamics. It's not hard. We took the hundred dollars a barrel when he started out, and when yeah. he got into a little bit of a cantankerous mood, we yeah, could we bopped it down fifty. Yeah. <laughs> like take that. So why is it? I'm, I'm, and this is not something you talk about in your book specifically, but knowing all of this, and you know, I've I've known this. I can read. I understand these things. You know, knowing that we actually pinpointed him, helped him get in. Is there is this this hysteria? Is that purely just to fuck with Donald Trump, or is there actual underpinnings of betrayal or something like you know Vladimir? Oh, Putin, he he went and got Odessa, whatever. You know what? What? Not Odessa, but um, no, no, you're right. He he got he he got the Crimea. Crimea. Sorry, uh, yes, you, that's all right. Yeah. The key here is it, and it, with all due respect. I love my country, but one of the things that I fear the most in this country is not our military and our intelligence and all. It's our lack of education. Ugh. Yes. Because of our lack of education, it is a horror to, to, to see how people will project their own dynamics and ignorance onto an entity that is far more sophisticated. If I go to Russia now, I can bet you 80% of the young kids I will deal with will speak one other language, probably yes. English. Yes. I go to the United States, I doubt that I can find many Russian speakers. And that's a problem of our education. At the same time, they do not understand the history of Russia. They do not understand, by the way, that Crimea, despite everything the uh, uh, our uh, uh, representatives have said, is absolute nonsense what they said. I was part of the agreement, and Crimea belongs to Russia. It is the port at which Russian can go into the Black Sea. It yeah. belongs to Russia. It was there for over 100 years. We never had any doubt about it. It was part of our agreement. If they look at the 1990 agreements, and there was no incursion or war. There's no. nonsense about yeah. you, 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 you nailed it by saying it's an education issue. In your book, you actually bring up a much more egregious point where you see a 10-story uh, bookstore filled with Chinese kids reading English books, and you, you, and that of course is scary when you not because you know these kids are dangerous, but they will definitely come out of their formative years much more educated on worldly affairs than any American kids or most. Well, you hit it on the head. I'm glad you brought it up. That was one of the most terrifying experiences I had. Yet I'm a I'm a friend of China. I've been in China since for 30 years, in and out, and I worked with the Chinese. I understood where they were going, but they went from a rickshaw to cars and a high speed maglev train. Yeah. I, the last time I was there was 10 years ago. I had tears in my eyes when I came out of the airport, when I was sitting on a magnetic levitation plane train that was going two to 300 miles an hour. After having come out of Amtrak, which barely made 60 <laughs> miles an hour, I go to Beijing and I see the most deadly weapon I've ever seen in my life. As you mentioned, it wasn't their jet fighters. It wasn't their artillery. It wasn't even their military. 10-story building, and I walked into it, and I was shocked. There was books upon books in English and British books, American books, everything in English. The aisles were filled for 10 stories, and I said, America, we're going to lose if we don't get our act together. I came back, and I explained this to a G2 military intelligence, Keith Alexander, Gerald Boykin, and others. I said, this is 
the real future of China. And now we've seen it. And ironically, I was able to also at the same time at Keek of CICIR in Beijing, that's the Iran Corporation, to explain to them that their leader, Hu Jintao, although he was acceptable and a decent man, he was a technocrat, could not continue to lead China. And they asked me why, because they wanted to know if I was taking down China. And I said, no, I, I'm not taking down China, although it wasn't hard for me to understand how to do it. I could do riots in Hong Kong and I could do all kinds of problems. Well, I, I want to get into that later on because there's some right. specific stuff, yeah. Okay, so the, the key there was that if I can't accelerate the education or at least select out, as we did in the CIA, incredibly competent children to match that type of capability, we're going to lose the race. And it doesn't matter whether my military is 2.2 million, 4 million. It's just not going to work. And you can see where the Chinese have done the Belt and Road dynamics where correctly he grew up as a child of the revolution. He was a princeling. And ironically, many of our own people made a mistake of saying, well, he's going to turn against the revolution. I said, mm -mm. there was a very primitive mechanism we have in psychiatry called identification with the aggressor. Namely, when you find an abusive wife or an alcoholic wife, what happened with Xi is his father was beaten up, his sister was beaten up, he was beaten up in the Cultural Revolution. Instead of saying, oh, I'm against the Cultural Revolution, what did he do? He identified with Mao Zedong. And that's when I picked off his young communist uh, accolade who, who was rising through the parties. And I said, this guy's coming to power. And this is the same mechanism that uh, the founders of Google uh, have fallen into, uh, Larry and Sergey, by basically creating what they grew up in was a, a, a surveillance state. That's correct. And, and ironically, uh, I knew about Larry and Sergey for many reasons. I won't go into it 20 years ago when they were at Stanford. And I had said, and I've warned them on Google, listen, if it hadn't been for guys like me and others, you wouldn't be here, particularly the Jewish Russians who came over here. And ironically, what he did, exactly what you said, Adam, he recreated the surveillance state in the notion at the same time while spouting out liberalism nonsense. He said, oh, yeah, we have to have this equality, but could care less. And in the same way, the high tech companies who profess some liberal values in northern uh, California, they have no problem hustling a $10 billion grant for uh, the Jedi for the for the government databases. Yeah, the government date and cyber command. And so while they espouse one dynamic, right. their the narrative doesn't is not consistent with their action. You're yeah. correct. So the identification with the aggressor occurs in Russia, occurs in China and many other places. I'm going to do something on this podcast that you did in your book, which was just a fun. It was so good because you. Uh, at the end of chapters, you kind of break the fourth wall or what I would call the fourth wall, and you speak directly to the reader. And right. just at the moment where I'm re and this is about three quarters of the way through the book, and I'm thinking, wow, man, if I didn't know Steve, I'd be like, this, this can be, this, is he just making this shit up? And you actually stop the reader in your book and you say, reader, at this point, you may be thinking, is this true? How can this all be true? And it is, you are such an anomaly to what everybody believe or how everybody believes the system works, how um, statecraft, whatever you want to call it, is used. Um, 
how can can you actually go into any country in the world without people thinking, "Oh shit, Pachenik's here. He's gonna he's gonna take us down, or I'm going down." I mean, are you, does that still follow you? Not really. Let me put it in the reverse. Pachenik is not as much of a dynamic or an entity as the person who I am. And I'll give you what I do is I do I'll do another uh, sophisticated term called paradoxical intention. When I was working with uh, two brilliant generals, Keith Alexander and uh, Jerry Boykin, head of special forces and Colin Agee, a a colonel in G2, I, I had. Uh, volunteered to go overseas to the Middle East to get some information and intelligence. And General Boykin correctly said to me, and I've always admired him, he uh, he said, well, Steve, you, you need a cover. You know, what do you have? As a co-? I said, General, Jerry, I don't need a cover. I mean, no matter where I go, I'm going to be a spy. It doesn't matter whether I am a spy or not. That's what they're going to know. And, and he said, well, aren't you afraid? I said, not really. He said, well, why? I said, well, I'm reversing the process. What I want to do is to go in. They're going to know I'm a spy, so they know I'm paying them. You're not paying me. At the same time, I don't want to cover from you people because I really don't want to know what you know. I have no desire to know what's security or what's secret. Most of the time, as LBJ said, it's in the New York Times anyway. (laughs) So I went in, and knowing Bashar Assad before the Civil War, I knew Bashar was an ophthalmologist, a board examiner like I was, with a beautiful wife who was an investment banker in England, and I knew they spoke French, okay? And I knew Syria was a French colony and were pretty sophisticated. So I said, Jerry, I'm going in there, and they're going to interrogate me. I said, what? And that's my job. So I recreated that dynamic so that I could go in and they were very polite. But for five to six hours, they interrogated me in and out and out. And I explained part of it. And it turned out we became friends after that, because what happened is in their own mind, they said, well, what kind of nutball would come in here, say we're he's a spy and he wants to get information. And on top of that, I had explained to Boykin and Keith and also to Shah Assad's people, I'm paying you to interrogate me. How Polish can you be? (laughs) This is unbelievable. He's paying us to be interrogated, $18,000, and at the same time, I'm paying them to have two spies on me, drive all around That was so beautiful, is that you actually had them take you around uh, all of these beautiful places in, in Syria, and you know, you very quickly catch on to wait a minute. Let's look what is going on here. I see the mosques right. and homes. In uh, you see the differences between Aleppo uh, and then, of right. course, uh, where the uh, where Assad comes from, which is uh, you know the Latakia, yeah. which is the beautiful kind of right. secular part up uh, in the northwest. And you and you say, well, guys, thank you so much for taking me around. The civil war will start here in Homs. It's going to be in Aleppo. And it's for very obvious reasons, because you saw the difference between the secular Syria and the Muslim Syria. Okay, now you hit it on the head. So whether I'm right or wrong, I came back and Keith understood it. Boykin understood it. The G2 intelligence understood it. And they said, okay, we're not going in. However, as you know, I was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and that was my last meeting. I went there for my last 
whatever uh, lunch or whatever, the elite of the elite. And I'm saying to myself, what am I paying $3,000 for lunch for? And I was hearing the most absurd, stupid discussions from Clinton's administration, Obama's administration coming in saying how they're going to attack Syria. And I warned them in the nicest way possible uh, not to. And unfortunately, there were CIA operatives. One was a woman. I mean, she was trying to co-opt me by saying, oh, you're an author. And I said, yeah, but not your kind of books. Anyway, the bottom line is I left the council for whatever reason. And then I said, we're going to have a problem. And that problem is, irrespective of what I've said to you gentlemen, we're going to go in there and self-destruct. And that was the problem I've had with my own people, with America. We have this tendency to constantly go into situations we do not understand. Vietnam, we spoke no language. I didn't know any uh, ambassador or capability of speaking Vietnamese. The only man I ever met who really spoke Vietnamese in the intelligence, Richard Armitage, who was formidable. I Nobody spoke French. I don't know anybody in Syria who really understood the Syrians, not only the Muslim part, but the Christian, the Alawi, what was an Alawi. And I was warning our own people, if you get rid of Bashar, you will kill two million Christians. For the first time, I had to articulate to our own systems that the Christians are being decimated in the Middle East. Nobody wanted to believe it. I said, look, I've been in Egypt, Cairo. The Coptic church started off with 10. I had called them up and said, I warn you, you're going to get burnt again and again and again. They said, don't worry, we're fine. 250 churches later, the Coptics are out of Egypt. The Assyrians, the Chaldeans, all the original Christians are having problems all over the Middle East, yet no one in the United States is saying a word. I would ask um, missionaries, I would ask those people in charge of the fundamentalist Baptists whom I appreciate and like, look, you've got a bigger problem than what the Jews had. You've got Christians getting mutilated everywhere, by the way, including Syria, but Bashar is protecting them. So when I came back, it wasn't hard to say, look, Homs and Homa and these areas were being infiltrated by Saudi operatives and Muslims. And Alawite, that Latakia, you have this big sign, didn't take a Polish genius to read it. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, I see what's going on. <laughs> There's no scarves. This is the first time I saw it. No yeah. scarves. And I said, wow, I don't think I need a five-page paper to explain what's going to happen. Right. So when I came back, and it happened anyway. And in a way, Adam, that's why you and I get along. We're on a course of self-destruction in the United States, albeit even with Trump. That's why. Well, here's the conundrum I see, and tell me if if I'm right. Um, Sadly, the business of the United States is making great war stuff. We make lots of great stuff and we sell it, which, of course, is for war purposes. At the same time, uh, we don't re- we're in, in our hearts. We're a, a peace loving nation. But the whole system is predicated on war. And you know, we just had this report about Afghanistan, which, of course, is, is going to get no play because why would we? The whole system is geared towards more war and everyone's on the back end, the way I see it, on the back end of, of, of the money that, that comes out during uh, these operations. And so the conundrum for President Trump is that, well, sure, he wants to build the biggest, baddest military so you can put $750 billion into it, but that's it. 
you know, and we really, you know, he also doesn't want war. So we have to pull people back. That's trillions of dollars that is not going into the pockets of the very people who propagate it. How do we break that cycle? Well, the way I would break it is very simple. Number one, as I've explained as, as a teacher once a year at the War College, Fort McNair in Washington, D.C., we have never really won a war. World War One, we did not win. We came in the last six months. World War Two was already won by the Russians, the Soviets. Forty-one. By the time we came in in forty-three, the real winner of this war was a gentleman who never was in combat before, but was an absolute genius. Never even went to West Point. A guy by the name of George Marshall. We don't study him. We don't learn anything about George Marshall. He never wrote a book about himself. A genius of strategy and tactics. Subsequently, we go to Korea, we lose. Vietnam, we lose. Iraq, we lose. Afghanistan. So it's the war machinery that has to be turned around. And the congressmen who represented the porters who won an M1 Abram tanked because they're busy, that has to be reconfigured. We have to reconfigure our entire economy away from the military industry complex. The Raytheons, the Lockheeds, the L3 communications, yes. all that nonsense has to be taken down and not given money and in turn turned around. We have a 2.2 standing military army, useless, useless. Most of the people who fight in, in skirmishes are probably special forces units that we hire mm -hmm. on an athlete. Or an outsourced services, the same right. thing with the CIA. So we have 16 different bureaus in the intelligence. I don't need 16. I don't need 16 people telling me how to run a, uh, a clinic. And I certainly don't need 16 different intelligence units to tell me what's going on in the world. I do not need a standing army of 2.2 million and a National Guard that does nothing. I do not need the bases here in the United States. But it takes a forceful man like Trump to stand by his conviction and say, we're taking the forces out of Afghanistan. We've done absolutely nothing. Zami Khalazad either makes the deal or doesn't make, he gets out or thrown out. My generals have to be held accountable. Which general have we held accountable for Afghanistan? Line? None. I crystal lied. I got Petraeus lied in Iraq and elsewhere. I've got all these generals who lied and are now on the boards of military industrial complexes. Not one of them has been in jail. Where is Cheney or Bush or anybody involved in 9-11 in jail? Nowhere. So there's no accountability. When there's no accountability, I can have Gina Haspel, who's been involved in the torture of prisoners during the uh, whatever, the Clinton and the Obama administration and the Bush administration. She's running around becoming the DCI. Yeah. Am I going to respect her? No. So, you know, we have a system of totally incompetent people. They can't execute well. We have no outcomes. And at the same time, we promote them, the Peter principle. What I would say overall, and it's, it's a sad commentary, I'm pessimistic. Because if we continue to go into wars, which we cannot win, do not belong in it, Russia doesn't have to do anything. China's just sitting there. They're just laughing, you know, and they're saying, hey, go ahead, guys, go everywhere you want. So, so a, part, a part of this, um, which you also detail in the book, is how the American public is just continuously propagandized by the media. And sure. you, at a certain point, you went back to the Department of Defense and you notice that everyone there is former CIA and they've essentially taken over the, the DOD but as we know from the church committee and many many other things, 
the media, the mainstream media, if we'll just call it that, on all sides, Fox News too, is just rife, filled to the brim with people who are either on the payroll, uh, have been convinced they're patriotic if they do this, and the messaging is just continuously flowing out. And anybody who says, hold on a second, maybe we should look at that, is vilified, chopped down, you know, and and made to be... Of course, we have the conspiracy theorists, etc. I mean, just all of these words. The American public, the only way maybe will get some traction is, you know, podcast, alternative media, but it's a tough nut to crack. Well, that's why you and I are in it, Alex Jones, and that's why yeah, we'll get to the key point, why this book, my, my memoir per se, was written out as a proposal. And I think it was a pretty good proposal. Forget what I, who I am and what I am. But the publishers, including Hashed, Reganry, all these publishers who I would known before, had known before, including my own agents, William Morris, who I happen to like, they're all scared. They're scared because I'm naming names. I'm saying, well, how is it possible before 9-11, I get a me, I get uh, two strangers who happen to be Mossad operators in a neighborhood in Chevy Chase, Maryland, knocking on my door, wanting to use my telephone. Really? Two Mossad operatives after I've taken out already Mossad operatives and I go to one of their chiefs of the Mossad and warn them, if you do anything to the United States, you will resent it. And in fact, when 9-11 came and a lot of American Jews are involved, and that was the other thing they didn't want to publish. And a lot of the people who are involved in the agency, because when I was there a year before, Andy Marshall said to me, oh, I don't know why there are CIA operatives in every department of defense <laughs> and all kinds of, I said, what are you, nuts? Do you think I, this is, you know, there were special operations, low intensity conflict? There was no question. The people who said it to me, they had to admit it. There's the deputy to Wolfowitz, who's a moron. He's And the deputy, the guy who died, and he admitted to me this is a stand down false but, flag. But, but analyze this for me, Steve. Analyze how so many good people uh, can go into intelligence i'll just say cia specifically because it's not my uncle cia anymore how many no. good people can go into that and what is the psychosis or the uh, the psychology of them to continue to propagate these just outright lies which only benefit the war industry they surely they see that they see that, they know that, and it was even admitted to me by my neighbor who was the CIA operative, a Russian woman, and unfortunately she went mentally ill after she confessed to me, but I didn't have anything to do with that. What I will tell you is the following. It's two very simple concepts. One, it's a salary, and two, it's a pension, my friend. Oh, jeez, how if sad I is that? I take away the salary and I take away the pension of any operative I will be able to take that person out and at any given time. Now, the irony of the CIA is that 40 to 60 percent of the people in the agency who are recruited are outsourced. In other words, the agency itself is a complete outsourced mechanism. But if I wanted to go into any one of the 16 branches of the intelligence, all I have to do is look at their pension and their salary. Now, unfortunately, Adam, you don't have a salary and I don't have a salary. Unfortunately. You don't have a pension, and I don't have a pension. <laughs> the thing in America, call and why I love America is not because I could achieve these things. It's because I could be a hustler. And when you hustle in America like you do and I do, you lose. 
And guess what? You go under. I've been under three different times, but I came back again. And the truth of the matter is that's why I love this country. The real religion of America is not Christianity or Judaism. The real religion of this country is entrepreneurship. But if you were to say that to anybody in the government, Adam, that is insurrection. Entrepreneurship? Are you talking about Google? No, Google is not entrepreneurship. I'm talking about startups that I used to do in Virginia, Northern Virginia, with a bunch of software guys, or an Alex Curry, or an Alex Jones, where we go out there, we hustle, we can sell vitamins, I can sell books, I don't even know half the time what I'm selling. You don't like my books? Don't buy them. I'm not interested in that. And by the way, somebody, I remember when Phyllis, uh, one of the publishers, at uh, the major house, uh, Berkeley Putnam, she was just brilliant woman. She said to me, I want you published in hardback. I said, I'm sorry, Phyllis. I'm just not that good a writer. She said, what do you mean not good? I'm not, I don't want to buy my own books for 17 bucks. I don't think they're worth it. So what do you mean? I said, I am a paperback schlock writer. I'll pay a dollar for my books, but I'm not paying more. She <laughs> said, that's impossible. And, and anyway, financially, I showed it. I could sell millions of books for $1 profit versus a couple of thousand books for $5 profit. And I ended up 30 years later still having two companies that are paperback books. So you know your limits. But the truth of the matter is, Adam, it's two dynamics. It's so simple. The salary and the pension. The minute I take that away, I'll have a real government and I'll have a real capability out there that most people will not believe. And that's why the Chinese are able to do it. The Russians, they really work with fear. And some fear has to be put into our systems to Mm -hmm. understand. and fire me because I'm an FSO. Really? Oh, yeah, exactly. And boy, did those impeachment hearings show what arrogant assholes they've become. It's un- unreal. Like, you dare, you dare replace an ambassador, which, of course, there's a rule 40% of all ambassadors are allowed. It should be political appointees. You know, everyone knows this. Uh, anyway, so, so you decide after 9-11, you decide, I've had enough. I'm gonna I'm gonna start telling people the truth, um, and and at what an actual false flag is, which of course has now been turned into oh you think there's crisis actors and no one died no the, the people died during false flags, but you right. decide to use um, Alex Jones who at the time is is has been I don't know maybe a couple of years local Austin, and you decide to use his vehicle. And the first thing you do is you say, you go on the air with him and say, this is a false flag. This is bullshit. Right. And Alex, you know, you can say whatever you want. I am to like Alex. I am to respect what he's done. I respect what you've done. It's not just because we're we're contrarian. We're not. Basically, we see the country as it is. But when you look at Alex Jones show about four or six months before 9-11, he predicted there would be a 9-11. You've got to, you know, you got you got to wonder who, who he's talking to. Wonder. Yeah, exactly. And the truth of the matter is when I saw that a year before and I'm walking through DOD and I see CIA in every position there and I see new guys like Doug Fife, a Jew from uh, Australia, or I see a rabbi. Uh, Dove Zugheim as an undersecretary. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? We don't have that in the intelligence community. That was Mossad operatives. 
And what I did was after that, I took one of their Mossad operatives, entertained them, and then I put them in prison for two years. As a message, the chiefs of the Mossad and the Israelis, this is not your country. You come to this country, you better be respectful and understanding. No more Epstein's, no more 9-11, otherwise we reverse it on you. And that's where Bibi's got problems now. So what is interesting about your statements on 9-11 is that it was Mossad. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. I would say right now, um, you know, the 28, the 28 missing pages that, that implicate Saudi Arabia, it's, it's really it's being used to point towards, oh, well, it was clearly the Saudis or something else going on. Well, let's say it's a compilation. Israel and, and, and Saudi Arabia are much closer than anybody realizes. Number one, Israel provides them with training. Number two, when I was in Saudi Arabia 25 years ago, Adam, there are three airports, one for the Saudis, one for tourists like myself or yourself who come in. And the third one are for special guests. Oh, I wonder who that is. <laughs> Israelis train the Saudis. They've been involved and we have been involved in Yemen, which we need to get out of. We've been killing thousands of kids for no reason whatsoever. It's a war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. There is no reason for us to fight Iran. John Bolton is not a war hero. He's what we call a chicken hawk. And so unfortunately, Trump has brought in many chicken hawks, the Boltons, all the neocons, and appointed them, Zameh Khalazad, Steve Hadley, Elliot Abrams. I mean, it's a repetition of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was warning Trump. I said, look, if you want to act tough and be tough, you better be tough because you're going to have to clean out Pompeo. You're going to have to clean out Pence. You're going to have to clean out your White House. One of the things that shocked me about the impeachment wasn't the fact that people were coming on testifying. You and I know you can ask your uncle in the in five different presidencies. I had never but never seen so many people on a telephone call with the White House. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Oh, it's the undersecretary, the deputy assistant secretary, the deputy to the deputy, the right hand. Well, and, and, you know, and I'm talking if we talk about Ukraine specifically, to me, it feels like. Everybody had their hand in the cookie jar. It, right. w- it was the Kagans, nay, Noodleman. I'm uh, sorry, Newland. She changed her name five times. It, right. w- it was John McCain. It was uh, John Brennan, of course. We, inst- we, that was, it was almost, it was really a hard coup. We killed people. You know, we had, we had snipers shooting people to get this primed to, inst- and this phone call, phone call evidence of Newland saying, oh, I'm going to get this guy in, put that guy in. And to me, it feels like, Everybody, including, and I'm just saying everybody, Republicans, Democrats like, have their hand in the goddamn cookie jar and are getting kickbacks. I mean, the way I see it is, first of all, why the hell is a billion dollars of our money going to some other country? That's question number one. No one ever asked that, but okay. So what happens is we approve $400 million. We don't send them a check. We turn around and go, hey, who's got some javelins? I mean, it's it's sick. It's sick. We're taking taxpayer money and putting it right into the hands of the military industrial complex and pretending that it's for the good of the country and we're going to stop Russia and national security, blah, blah, blah. These, it's, is it just completely rife? Is there anyone honest left? Well, what's happening, it's a collusion of interests. And really what we're heading to is self-delusion. What we're getting heading into is really believing that we're a superpower. We're not. 
just because we have a standing on of 2.2 million and the fact that we have never won a war is so important to our citizens to understand. In other words, we sacrificed 2,500 men in Afghanistan and another four to 5,000 wounded for what? For nothing. And you're going to explain that to the families? You're going to tell them that Stanley McChrystal lied and then had a movie about himself made that he was so great? Or David Petraeus lied and never had a combat medal, but he came up with the surge in Iraq and the counter. Are you kidding me? He's he's an idiot. He's a moron. He's a self-aggrandizing idiot who I've seen before. Goes to West Point, marries the daughter of the superintendent, then fellates his way right up to power with four medals, never did anything. And in turn, what you need is the ruthless White House. And I'm afraid between you and me and our dear audience, he's not ruthless enough. Guys like me were brought into companies and we cleaned them out. One of the chapters that I had in there was taking over the savings and loans of Maryland, getting rid of the, the guys who ran it. They went to prison for 10 years and then going to the head of the Washington Post and telling him you can't write about you know, our net net liquidity problem. And then Ben Bradley says to me, well, I don't know the difference between liquidity and bankruptcy. I said, well, you're going to see bankruptcy the minute you yeah, put it in. Yeah, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. But the stupidity that occurred in the Washington Post was amazing. They didn't want to admit it. The accounting firms, Arthur Anderson, all the famous ones went under because they were crooked. There is no accountability in the 21st century. There's no accountability with my intelligence system, with my military. I'm not a special guy. There's nothing unique about me. I'm a doctor. But if I make a mistake, I'm going to be sued. I'm a, a writer. If I make a mistake, I'm going to be sued or I didn't get paid. I'm an entrepreneur. If I don't make a, if I don't make a successful company, I go under. Where do I have no consequences? The military, the intelligence, the government. I get my pension and I get my salary and I live a very happy life without any consequences. Why should I worry about the fact that I'm going to screw over this nation and I'm going to have kids die for no reason whatsoever? It's not my fault. I'm just doing my job. Mm-hmm. I'm doing. Does it sound familiar to you? The old left-wing fashion, what is proper? I'm doing my job. Yes, just what doing my job no matter what. Just the process. You're right. Just in, involved in the process. And what is the correct word to say about something? Well, that's not the correct definition of he, she, it, or it. Oh, I see. Last time I heard that, that was from Mussolini, Hitler, and Stalin was saying to people, what is the correct way to talk? When I hear that, that's when I get nervous because I'm not going to accept that. By nature, you know. I'm going to I'm going to basically say I'm going to continue to fight you no matter what. So you're you're kind of I think your solution uh, to the problem at hand is is exactly what you're doing is this book is explaining how it works and trying to at least get the the knowledge out there of how it really works and how. I mean, to me, it's. Very, I mean, that's. I think that my whole career, when I think about it, I've been in some cases just contrarian. But I did, and because I didn't know exactly what was going on in my psyche, but now I understand much better. It's like I just, I just see it. I just see the bullshit. It's so, it's so obvious, and people don't see it. 
But you see, America is a wonderful country. It has to be educated. Our education system is a disaster. Public education is a disaster. When I wrote the chapters on Cornell University, one of the worst schools I'd ever been to, they gave me a French course which used 25-year-old French textbooks in 1964, I was using the words mitrailleurs. Mitrailleurs, yes. <laughs> tanks. And I'm saying to myself, does anybody here understand how retarded this is? The English classes, I just, you know, Andrew Marvell, I said, what does that have to do with anything? That's British. It, it, that's interesting that's because good. when uh, in my high school and I, in the Netherlands where we learned to speak French, German, Dutch, English, I had the same. It was like, why do I? Because it was always bonjour, Lien, bonjour, Monsieur le Professeur, Papa fume une pipe. Eh oui, Papa fume. I'm like, <laughs> where am I going to need to talk about some old dude smoking a pipe? This is not interesting to me. Yes, but on the other hand, remember, you come out of a multicultural family, and that was your advantage and disadvantage. When you come from a multicultural Holland to Austin, Texas, no offense, it is a contrast in culture. Oh, sure, Me, sure. It was always a contrast in culture. But my problem wasn't the contrast. It's the pretense. When a university at Cornell calls itself liberal and it gives me textbooks that are 20 years old, courses that have no relevance to my writing as a future novelist and condemns me to the future saying you'll never be a writer, which was fine by me, teaches me pre-med by comparative anatomy and cutting up a shark, which I said, the day a shark comes into my practice, <laughs> and maybe I'll know what's going on. So you can see how the elite system, including Harvard and MIT now, is the entire, entitled, spoiled, corrupt intellectually impaired. I've got a professor, I got the president of MIT who's the same as I am, a Jew from Latin America, Hispanic, can't write English. I wrote to him repeatedly, learn the English language. You're the president of MIT. You're the president who allowed Epstein to come in when you were a provost. So stop externalizing your responsibility. There's no responsibility. Not at Harvard, not at MIT, not at Cornell University. And then they put down, I went to the Wild Medical College, a Jewish name to a school where I was at Cornell University Medical College, the most anti-Semitic school. I was kind of proud of it. We had two Jews, four Catholics. This was in 68, five women. I never went to Wild Cornell. Sandy Wild was a crook at Citigroup who bought out the name and they put it back on to Cornell University. What cowardliness. So it doesn't only belong to our military and our intelligence. It belongs to our intellectual so-called elite. They're yes. pathetic. Now, you're the, you're, the only, you're the only guy I can talk to about this because you're a Jew and, yeah. and, you, and you're happy to uh, speak highly or poorly. What is it? With Israel and the American Jews, just what is it? How, what is your view you on it? The problem is, I came here, number one, the Jews who came here after World War II are those Jews who are more intellectual and what we call the uh, intellectual class. My father was in the French army. Every one of our friends were physicians who were either in the Polish army, French army, and even those who were prisoners of war camp in Germany were never treated as Jews. So what happens is during World War II, the American Jew was absent. 
whether the Holocaust was a million, two million, the number is not six million, but people were killed. But I'll tell you one thing, we in Poland and elsewhere, we were as much afraid of Stalin as we were Hitler. My mother feared Stalin much more. And actually, now we finally get a movie called Bitter Heartless that finally showed that before Hitler came to power in 39, Stalin had already killed seven million Ukrainian Christians. So the American Jew, number one, is usually born in Brooklyn, has no outside education, thinks of himself usually as very bright and doesn't have to be accountable, jumps off to Harvard or Yale and serves not this country. During World War II, many American Jews served because they saw what the tragedy was. In modern times, I know a very few American Jews who serve because they don't feel they belong. They should sacrifice their life for this country. In turn, they believe that because of their guilt, they didn't do anything for us who were exterminated or who were in camps. They in turn now reify the notion of Israel. Well, Israel, we look at Israel, those of us who knew Israel, during World War II, Ben-Gurion, no great fan of the Jews, was offered by Eichmann, who spoke Hebrew, 400,000 refugees from the camps, and Ben-Gurion said, no, I'd rather take 300 pigs. So we don't forget that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, it's a true story. This wasn't made up. Israel was never designated for the refugee Jews. What it was was they said, oh, the Holocaust wasn't relevant till 1965. What happened in 1965? Whoops. America and Russia pulled out of the Middle East. We were no longer in Egypt. We were no longer concerned about Israel. So what did the Israelis come up with? A cockamamie story that we killed, we were exterminated six million. We never had six million Jews. There weren't six million of anything there. Yeah, there were camps in Auschwitz, but Poles died, Catholics died. No one speaks. And I, I used to say this to the Christians. Why don't you explain, number one, the first people who were killed in World War II, Lutherans. Mm -hmm. You go to Dachau, it's Lutherans. Nobody says a word. Second people kill. Oh, the Lutherans in northern Germany. Who's in southern Germany? Oh, the Catholics. What about that? A couple of hundred thousand million Catholics were killed. German Catholics. Oh, what was the sound of music about? Oh, it's a musical. No, it was about Austrian Catholics who were being killed by Hitler. That's absolutely right. Yep. And nobody talks about it. It's the American Jew has no knowledge of anything. It's total propaganda. The Holocaust Museum is absolute nonsense because I went there and I heard this lecture from some German Jew who said that we were brought over from Havana by the American embassy. I said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? You have no idea what you're talking about. I stood up and I said, the people who brought us to Cuba and the United States were guys by the name of Maya Lansky, Longies Wellman, and Luciano. Then they started the gambling uh, in Cuba. They started the gambling. And that's what is, that's in the movie, The Irishman. That's yes. in every movie you want to see, The Godfather. The Cuba was the center for all the gambling things that had nothing to do with anything else. So the American Jew is an absence of intellect, courage, and the ability to understand the world and is highly prejudiced. Well, let me let me touch let me touch the third rail. So, is it is this because of Hollywood and Jewish involvement in Hollywood that these? Um, That's part. Uh, we were writers and we were Hollywood. Warner Brothers, uh, MGM, all of them were Jews except you know for a few. 
the reality is we use that as a propaganda machine. But when we put in that they were, the Russians were our allies, guess who came in in the 40s and the early 50s? McCarthy. And he said, oh, you American Jews, you're communists. So they got hit backwards again. But the American Jew, for the most part, has never really understood what the history of anything of, of the World War II. If I say to them, uh, who started the concentration camps? They said Hitler. I said, no, the British, 1898. They, they, they arrested all the Boer women, 24,000. Mm -hmm. I said, who gave Mengele and eugenics the money to do all the experiments on the eyes? He said, well, the Nazis. I said, no, it was Stanford, Columbia, Harvard, Rockefeller University. He said, what? Oh, yeah. I said, why don't you look at the grants on eugenics? I said, oh, by the way, how did Hitler know that you were Jewish, you were British, you were English? Or you were I, I, IBM tracked him for him. Watson. Yep. Mr. Watson, Mr. Watson himself. himself. So, That's right. With, with the punch cards. Which the punch cards. And who, by the way, gave the Nazis the ability to build tanks and trucks? Mr. Ford, yeah. Henry Ford, a good anti-Semite. So here's the history of America going to Germany. But let's not stop there since we talked about dialectic. Well, who went to the Soviet Union? A guy by the name of Harriman, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I remember sitting with him there, quiet Harriman brown money. So what we were doing, as my mother said, this was a war about money. Well, it, well, as Smedley, as General Smedley said, all war is a racket, of course, which Correct. is true. And, which is true. So here we, we're funding the Soviets. We're funding the Germans. We don't get in until 1943. And guess what happens? The Russians already defeated most of the Germans. And, and either way, we win and became a superpower. The American Jew is probably going to be an artifact by the next 10 years. The I would predict the Indians from the South Asia will dominate the areas mm. of where we used it, banking, whether it's high tech and other things, because yeah. in effect, they have become they produce in India about 300,000 software engineers a year. We don't come anywhere near that. No. And in fact, we're we're uh, rigging our uh, H uh, H1B visa system to bring them all in. I mean, they're everywhere. Portland, Oregon, they live in five to an apartment. They don't care. And they're, they're just you know, filling it up. Well, that's the future in America. And I, and I wish him the best. But the reality is the American Jew is an anachronism. He had his time or she had his time, her time. And what you're seeing with Schiff and what you're seeing with all of those little guys who are, have nothing else to do and, and Nadler are the American Jews who have nothing to do except waste their time on process. Or Schumer, I said, why don't you start a company instead of wasting time just going through and it's verbal masturbation, doing nothing and wasting our time. Oh, by the way, when did you guys serve in the Ameri American military? <laughs> like never. Never. No, never. no. And if you were to say to them, has any of you served in the CIA? Oh, no, we, we, that's a terrible organization. <laughs> well, there you are, my friend. So. Uh, at the end of the book, you as friend of China, you you talk about um, your visit there, and as we previously mentioned, the uh, the ten story bookstore, and you lay out as they say, well, you know, you explain to them why uh, uh, um, why Xi Jinping, why 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 he would have this you know this Maoistic 
personality of his oppressor and what he was going to do. And then they ask you, friend of China, so what would you do to uh, to stop that if it really went that far? And you lay out something that tells me either you came up with a strategy <laughs> or uh, because it is ex- so you say, well, I would start protests in Hong Kong. Uh, I'd start a whole bunch of shit in uh, in Western China, which I think is the Uyghurs. I think that's probably, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, agit pop, as you would call, uh, prop, you know, agitation propaganda. Right. I'm sure there's bad stuff going on, but it's all you can see it in the media being played. Uh, and you say, well, we and then we start the Bhutan region uh, the with the uh, with the water issue. I mean, ev- everything you put in there that you told them is happening. Dr. Steve, how long have you been working on China? <laughs> it seems like this is you. Well, it is and it isn't. I, I, it, let me put it this way. I'm not that instrumental in the dynamics of any policy. It's it's just that I come up with an idea. That the people who know me and don't know me, they can also understand that the, the vulnerable points of a country, particularly if you've been in Hong Kong, you don't have to be a genius since I was there when they were you know, given to the Chinese in 1995. You're talking about a culture that is, believe it, entrepreneurship, they're, they're, they're exponentially entrepreneurial. You know, no, I've never seen a culture more entrepreneurially oriented in Hong Kong. Well, in order to subjugate that and make that part of China, that's not going to be easy psychologically. You have to take out the youth, you have to take out the leaders, and that's what you're seeing here. So the agitprop there, the agency could have understood it, Trump understood it, a China expert could understand. The problem with the West, the Gobi Desert in the in the northern part, Xinjiang province with the uh, Muslims, that was inherent. In other words, it, it's not hard to connect three what seem to be disparate entities and create a strategy. And what I'm saying is we have people in the system that are sophisticated enough to understand that. What G has to understand is right now he's hurting and the economy that he's created, or let's put it this way, that we allowed him to create because he doesn't work on the dollar. He works on a credit system that's internal to them. So uh, there's a concept called mark to the market, as we've talked before. Where if you have a hundred million dollars in debt, you, you 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 or an asset worth a hundred million, but it's ninety million in debt, it, they don't want to mark it to ten million net no. asset. They right. say it's worth a hundred million. Well, when you have that kind of accounting and you have a credit system that floods the, the the country along the lines of whether you're loyal to the Communist Party, it's an internal business of self destruction. And then, of course, the easiest concept is you see there's no water in half of China. That's 500 million people. And that becomes Bhutan, Nepal, and you start creating problems there with India, which is naturally hostile to to China. So there, there are normal pressure points like in medicine that you can push. And if you put them, you integrate them together, it works. And and our system kind of understands that. There are people who know that. <laughs> For it, so... For the American millennial and Gen Xer as well, I, I think that this is the audience that matters. What do you want them to take away from your book? I want them to understand that, number one, they're okay. I, I'm not a, a critic of the millennials. They have their own way, their own style, their own concepts. What I want them to do is to become more 
self-educated in the areas that they want to be for themselves, not not necessarily for me. And and to understand that they are privileged and 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 rightfully so if they want to be but they should be giving back to this country or their community which is more important something of themselves that they happen to enjoy and and i see that by the way here in the south where you have the fundamentalists and each one of them are homeschooled or whatever but they're always giving back to the yeah. community they either they support one way or the other they go in the prisons and they talk to the prisoners or they help the elderly and and that's really what I'm looking at. And I think it's there. I, I'm not a doomsday person. I think we have a great future. I think that our future will continue. And I would hope that Trump really goes with his instincts. Get the people out of the war. Let's get the economy going. Let's make those trade deals. And he will go down in history as one of the greatest presidents. And Anna Curry will go down in history as one of the greatest interviewers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that tactic doesn't work on me anymore, Steve, although I appreciate it. Uh, what, what I will say, and uh, we've discussed this before, and, uh, and I make the offer formally one more time, this needs to be an audio book. It needs to be in your right. voice. I will happily produce it. I will come to Florida. We can sit for, for days, we three, how many, whatever it takes. This is, this is how you reach these kids. Uh, they're not reading. Uh, that's not our fault, but it, it is. But it, they're just not reading that much. But if they can put a an audio book on their uh, iPhone and they can play it at one point five speed, because that's what they do too. You know, this is this is how insane it's gotten. Is where they're trying to cram so much information in their head, they're compressing it, they're self compressing into just so they can do as get as much as possible in. I really would like to do that with you. So please be open to that because it is the way open. to make it work. I am listening. Remember that. Yes. <laughs> Steve, I cannot thank you enough for uh, taking the time. Uh, again, the uh, the book is American Warrior in Crisis. It is uh, a, a great read. It's fun. It's eye-opening. You can sit there with Wikipedia next to the book and see, oh, shit, that's true. Oh, my God, that's that's how it happened. Oh, oh, wow. Even Wikipedia can't get around some of these facts, although I'm sure they try. Um, it is it's, it's just dynamite. It's a classic that I recommend everybody read, and they can get it from uh, stevepachenik.com, I think is the easiest way to uh, to buy it. Yeah. And uh, and I hope that's well. I know that you measure success of this in a different, not in monetary terms, um, but I I really feel nine that nine dollars a copy you don't make money. <laughs> no, but you're above your paperback uh, price, so that's it's progress. <laughs> I'll, I'll also put a link to it in the the show notes for this episode at withadamcurry.com. Steve, I, again, thank you so much for your time and and thank you for your service to the republic because it is incredibly important and there's just not enough like you uh doing this it's my honor and thank you adam okay and i will leave us with uh something that uh, well no no this is even better it's back in the usa i figured maybe you'd like that one all right steve thanks again <laughs> thank you leaving you with chuck berry back in the usa we'll see each other soon oh well oh well we just touched ground on an international runway Jet propelled back home from overseas to the USA New York, Los Angeles, oh how I yearn for you Detroit, Chicago, 
Searching for a 